Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Mel. I'm Janet. I'm Helen. And I'm Abigail. For today's episode, we have the lovely Abigail Hingwen, the author of Love Boat Taipei, a novel about teenager Ever Wong as she navigates love, family relations, and her identity during her trip on the cultural phenomenon, Love Boat. It's a vivid story all set on the backdrop of the rich culture of Taiwan. Love Boat Taipei debuted on the New York Times bestsellers list, was featured in Entertainment Weekly, recognized by Seventeen Magazine as one of seven best new YA books of 2020, and was recently optioned for film by Ace Entertainment, the production company behind the Netflix movie To All the Boys I Loved Before and its sequel, which is written by Asian-American author Jenny Han. In addition to being an author, Abigail also works full-time in the corporate world, specializing in artificial intelligence technology, and is a mother to two boys. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you girls for having me. It's been so much fun just being a part of your world. No, thank you for joining us. We're so excited. Um, I know our editor, Michelle, who's probably listening right now, is a huge fan of your book, and she has literally told me she finished it in like three days. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's amazing. But Abigail, do you mind sharing with our listeners, you know, how did you even get into writing? Yeah, so I have written my whole life. I've always told stories. My brother and sister remind me that I used to, they used to come into my room at night and I would just spin all these stories about us and our friends and our cousins going on adventures through the woods in a world with no adults. And I started keeping a journal when I was nine and really have kept up the practice ever since. Um, so back then, when I when I go look back at my old journals, they're all coded, so there's like, like no emotion. It's just like all facts. And I remember what I was writing about at the time, and I was like, you know, a boy that I had a crush on or like someone that I was upset with, but I was afraid someone would find them. So I was never really honest about what was going on. Mm. And then later, when I felt more secure that my journals weren't going to be read, I would just kind of write how I was feeling emotionally. And that was my, my emotional outlet. Like mm. I, if I was just upset, I wouldn't have to explain. I wouldn't have to set up context. I would just dive right in and just like, ah, oh, this is going on, right? But I've always just been drawn to stories and every opportunity I had in college and then law school to take an assignment and turn it into a story, I would do that. So I would say it's, you know, it's been my whole life, um, but it wasn't until just even maybe five years ago that I really thought I could take it seriously. That's amazing, though. I find it really interesting that you could need to write even though you went to law school. I know you went to you got your degree from Harvard, right? And then Columbia? That's right. It's a government at Harvard and then law school at Columbia. That's awesome. Were you part of like, you know, maybe writing clubs when you're attending law school? Because I'm, I'm sure the law writing is a little different than like creative writing, right? Right, right. So I was on the Columbia Law Review, which is a fantastic, you know, opportunity to, to grow as a writer and an editor. Um, I wrote legal articles and I, you know, I edited legal articles 
Um, but even there, I, I felt like I was always taking the opportunity to tell a story. So mm. um, my article was uh, was about um, this really esoteric piece of law that governed the servants of foreign sovereigns who came to the United States. And the title was something like Suing the Sovereign Servant. And it, it was really like as close as I could get to writing a fantasy novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, you know, it actually, it won this like national award. And wow. I would get like people like, you know, they actually wrote me and say, oh, you know, your article. But I, I felt like writing legal articles for me, it wasn't going to move the needle for anything. Because I just, I didn't have a zillion ideas like a lot of my friends who did want to go into academia did. You know, they had like all these areas of law they wanted to push. And I'm just, I had all these stories in my head. Um, so I didn't actually join any creative writing groups. I was invited and I just never did it. I was very focused on like the legal stuff. Mm. Um, then I, I clerked for um, Judge Rogers on the DC circuit. And that was also another amazing writing experience. We would write opinions of the court together. And w- w- that was, you know, incredible where either she would draft the first draft or I would draft the first draft. And then the next person would create version two and completely rewrite it. And the next person would create version three. And, and then it was just like this incredible opportunity to have this brilliant person and a brilliant writer editing everything that you wrote, like word for word for word. Mm. So after the clerkship, I practiced law for two years. Um, I was doing corporate transactions, so really big, boring documents with like disclosures and prospectuses and stuff. But when I was pregnant with my second child and I went on maternity leave, that was when I was supposed to write the um, law review article to apply to academia. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't bring myself to do that. But meanwhile, I had an idea for a novel in my head. It was this high fantasy and my husband was super encouraging. He's like, you know, you're excited. Why don't you just try it? Yeah. And so that's when I realized I started writing it and like the ideas just came, like the story flowed and I, you know, there's this big complicated world and characters and they're fencing. And it was like, it was so much fun. And I, that's when I was like, whoa, there really is something here. I've told the story about this, um, this particular novel elsewhere, but I ended up sending out into the world, um, got a couple bites. There was one agent who printed it out, hand marked it up. So I really think there's something here and snail mailed it back to me. And she ultimately turned down the revision, but that was really encouraging because she was like, you know, she's, she's a great agent. And uh, 10 years later, when I went out with Love Boat Taipei and I had a bunch of agents bidding on it, she offered and I went with her. And so it felt like we'd come full circle. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what I haven't told anyone yet, um, because I just talked to her on Saturday about my new projects to move forward. She wants me to move that one forward as like wow. number four. <laughs> so, oh my God. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was like, really? I'm so excited. So hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll actually get it, get it to the finish line. But that was super exciting. That's amazing. Maybe I'm, I haven't really met a lot of like Asian American writers. I, I meet a lot of Asian American you know, lawyers and like the typical, I guess, careers. But do you mind also sharing to our listeners, like, you know, your cultural background and a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah. So I'm, I, I would say I'm a little bit unusual for my generation because my dad came to the United States when he was 13. Mm. Um, and the other thing that's different about me than a lot of my, um, the peers that I, you know, I would meet throughout the years, um, is my mom is from the Philippines and my dad's from Indonesia, um, and their parents are from mainland China. And so I think I've always just had a very multicultural family to begin with, like, you know, across, um, countries and religions. Um, and that, and then my dad being more Americanized, having grown up, he went to high school in the United States. Um, I think that gave me a little bit more of um, maybe a little bit more freedom to explore some of the, the job opportunities in the United States that um, I, I felt like some of my, my friends who parents had, um, they came from like more traditional Asian American families, like they, they felt a little bit more hindered. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents actually wanted me to go into politics. Um, and the reason I think was they were, you know, they're part of this activist community in Ohio um, that was thinking a lot about minority rights. And I, I tell the story as well on tour, but 
you know, they would go meet the administrators of my high school, not for me or my brother and sister, but to help advocate for these other immigrant kids whose parents couldn't speak English very well. And they would try to help translate across culture. They only wanted me to learn English, which, you know, in some ways I, I, I still like uh, regret that I don't speak Chinese very well at all. Like I, I learned it in college, but, you know, I didn't grow up with it. Um, and they were proud of me, I guess, being kind of a face and that I did show choir and dance squad. And so I think I, I had that. I had a different type of pressure on me. Um and my cry moment, like where I had to split with my parents was telling them I wasn't going to go into politics. Like I was working in Washington, D.C. Um, for the Senate Judiciary Committee and, you know, would go to these parties and political events. And I just felt like I can't I'm not going to survive in this world. Like mm-hmm. it's not for me. It's like it felt really like a lot of young people with so much authority and no life experience. And I just uh, didn't think I could last. And so I remember being on the phone with my dad in D.C. and crying and saying, I'm going to let everybody down. I just can't do what they want me to do. Um, so f- in a very weird way, like with the with Love Boat Taipei coming out and then going on tour and then having these opportunities to speak with so many people, like I've actually kind of come again in another full circle with what they wanted, like having a voice mm. for yeah. um, these issues that I think we're really sensitized to because we grew up, see, you know, we grew up with the racism and the issues getting stopped at the border and you know all those things that we grew up with that that may not be seen by the majority culture and so now I have an opportunity to share some of those stories out that's awesome thank you for sharing that um I think it's so fascinating that you wrote this book while working a full-time job here at Asian Boss Girl we kind of did the same thing we started this podcast while working our full-time jobs um and it's definitely not easy but in addition to what we were doing you know you had a lot of responsibilities as the mother of two really so I guess my question is how did you balance writing a novel maintaining your full-time job and being a wife and mother or do you have difficulty finding that balance yeah, I definitely have difficulty finding that balance. And I just came through another really big decision point. Um, I, ha- I have a piece out there that Columbia did with me uh, where I talk about time shifting. And so I think that was the first answer. So, you know, Foxstone was that very first novel. I wrote it when I was on maternity leave. Um, but I also ended up coming out to California with my husband who works in tech. And I ended up taking three years off. So during that time, I was raising my, my kids, writing the novel. And I wrote two novels wow. during that period. And then I went back to law. And as I was going back to law, I, I felt like I needed to complete my training. Um, mm-hmm. I went back to a you know big corporate firm. I sent out that no- the second novel like, and just, just got it out there to the agents. And it took a long time to just percolate through the system. I got an agent. I was revising. And it went back and forth with with you know me and her. And then it went to the, it started, we started submitting it to the publishing houses. And all that just takes a really long time, mm-hmm. usually. So I was just not really writing then. I was focused on the practice um, but then I had the opportunity to go in-house to Intel Capital, which is, um, you know, the venture capital arm of, of Intel. And that was the, the next big decision. I'm sorry, actually, the first decision I, I didn't mention was not going into legal academia. Mm-hmm. And that I think that gave me a little more headspace to do this more creative writing on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the second big decision was to leave the law firm and go in-house. And I felt like at the time you know, just kind of all the snobbery of being at a law firm. Like if you leave, you're not going to be working on these interesting projects anymore. Um, the bo- A lot of the board work is done at these big, you know, white shoe law firms. And, and I, the law firms are great. Like it's incredible training ground, incredible people. Um, so I felt like I was retiring to go in-house. Um, but I had connected with the team. I'd had a chance to kind of try it out for six months and they called me with the job offer. And I knew that it was a really um, emotionally solid team. Like it, I didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't stressed from work, so I could go to work, I could do it, it was fun, it was interesting, I would work with new companies and new, you know, startup companies and see the new technologies, but at night, all that time would be mine, I would have the capacity mm-hmm. to write and to be with my family. So I think, 
you know, over the years, like I was, I was at Intel Capital for eight years. And then the last two years, I, I've been working with our artificial intelligence products group team. Um, I've definitely doubted that I made the right choice. Um, there was a period when I had lost my agent um, and I had gone out for two promotions at work and both of them, I was, I came in number two. And so that was, I think the hardest moment where I'm like, you know, I gave up, I gave up my career for the writing and it, and I have nothing to show for it. And then I felt like I'd also not, I had nothing to show for in the writing, but then everything started to change um, because I had applied for those jobs and put myself out there. I'd gotten known by certain people in leadership. So there's an Asian American woman at my company and I actually just told her, I tell her that I tell this story. Um, early on, she had been really supportive of me with, when she didn't even know me. That was like, we were at a party. She randomly got up, picked me up by the shoulders, sat me down in front of this, in her seat. And, and it turns out I was in front of the general counsel of the company. Um, and she just did that for me randomly as like another, you know, Asian American woman. So since she had talked me through the, the promotions that I was going for, uh, she'd seen my resume. She'd see me do a practice interview with her. And she knew that I wanted to do public speaking in artificial intelligence. And so when I lost the two jobs, she called me and she's like, you know, like you got to hang in there. It's going to be fine. Um, I've been in your shoes before. And by the way, there's this women's conference. Um, I'm going to send you to speak there on artificial intelligence and public policy. And so that was my first my first opportunity to go speak at a major conference. And there is sometimes there's a lot of politics um, around some of the work I was doing. And so nobody could take this from me because there's not there was mm-hmm. a women's conference. Right. There's just not that many women in our um, community. Um, so so I was protected by her and I spoke. And then after that, another one of my supporters who had been championing me through the, the two promotions, um, he gave me the opportunity to speak on AI. I think the first one was Brussels. And then I went on to speak in like Berlin and Beijing and, and it was incredible. So it really transformed my career. And then at the same time, Love Boat Taipei, like went out to agents, had a bunch of offers that it sold at auction to HarperCollins. And so it was very weird how it just all kind of changed like at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So now I'm actually, I just came through another major decision where I had this book, I'm writing the sequel, it hit the New York Times um, and then we've got the film deal and I'm serving as an executive producer. And then meanwhile, my AI job was getting bigger and bigger. So I actually announced that I was departing my company <gasps> on Friday. <gasps> Wow. It was a really, really hard decision, um, which actually says a lot about the people I was working with that, you know, because everyone's like, why don't you just leave? Like this other stuff is so cool. Yeah. I'm like, I really, really enjoy these people yeah. that I've been working wow. with. Um, and so then half hour after I sent out the note, I got these frantic emails. Wait, 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 we're trying to make you an offer that's going to oh, work for yeah. you. And so they, as I mentioned, they they suggested that I take kind of a role as a tech evangelist for the company. So that's, it's all outward facing. It's, it's going to continue to do the same things that I've been doing, which is public speaking mm-hmm. around technology and then hopefully hosting um, and revamping like the their artificial intelligence podcast. So um, so I'm going to try that out and see like how this works for a season. But it's definitely difficult to find the balance. Yeah. I think every day I question like, ha- do I have the right balance? Am I stretched mm-hmm. too thin now? Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I have to navigate next. Well, that sounds like an amazing opportunity that you can still be involved, but also sort of figure out a schedule that that does work for you because you have so mm-hmm. many, so many things going on. Yeah. While you were at work, were you pretty transparent about what you were doing with the book as well as the work so, that you were doing? You know, it evolved over time. And I've, I've gotten this question a lot because I spoke at a lot of Silicon Valley companies and there's so many aspiring writers actually hiding in the closet and they, mm. they, they want to know, can, can we talk about it? Yeah. And I think I actually encourage people to talk about it, um, but I understand why it's hard. So I did have one woman say to me, she's, she said, like, do you think that the men respect you less because you wrote a romantic comedy? Yeah. And I was kind of horrified. I said, you know, actually, 
they're really excited that I published a book and they want to know how they can publish their books. Mm. Um, so I think sometimes we can be more insecure about the things that we've struggled with ourselves. And so for me, that's actually kind of like the next step in our journey as, you know, in, in this conversation, like we need to move, get over that insecurity and be able to bring our full selves to the table as, mm. as women. So I, I wasn't as open. I was open to, I think, with just like a small circle of people initially. And, but once the book came out, I, I guess the cat yeah. was out of the bag. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, I just kind of got more comfortable with that. And so the announcement that just went out about me taking this new role includes that I'm also the New York Times bestselling author of Love Boat Taipei. And that's, I mean, it does kind of blow my mind, but it's, I find that it's really, really encouraging to other people who have these other passions and they feel like, okay, I can, I can do it too. And it matters. And it's important to my, my company and to the people around us. That is a beautiful example of how to balance your full-time job and your career and to not see your full identity as only that and to be able to feel like you can bring other facets of your interests and and other life goals into your work life. I didn't know that there were so many um, individuals that you know are working full-time jobs and maybe also excited about going into writing or write in Moonlight on the side. Um, so can you share with our listeners a little bit about the writing industry? So as you said, people are, are curious like, if they if they want to get involved, how do you get a book published? Like, what was that whole process like for you? Yeah, no, great. This is a great question, and I think if I get asked the question in the future, I can point them to to the podcast, <laughs> which would be great. <laughs> the bottom line is, you should read a lot of books, and you should just keep writing. That there's no substitute for just a lot of um, a lot of practice, <laughs> writing a lot of words, and then knowing the genre that you're writing in. You know, there's many paths to writing. Like, and I think there's many reasons why people write. Like, I think. For me, for so many years, it was just an outlet for me to express like how I was feeling and to kind of you know, take it out of take it out of me and like look at it on a page. Um, it also was an opportunity for community because I would exchange writing with my critique partners. And wow, you really get to know people so well when you exchange your writing. Um, you often don't even know what you're revealing about yourself through your characters. Um, but you know, if you want to get published, there's there's certainly the self publishing route, which has um, I feel like you know. There are some people who do really well in, in that path. And there are actually some books that will probably be best in a self-published route, like if there's like a very like specific niche market. And then if you want to go the traditional route, which is what most people ask me about, the fiction, you have to write the whole book. Usually it's very rare to get a, a partial sale for your first novel um, because it's quite difficult to make a novel close satisfactorily. It's not like a nonfiction. I mean, nonfiction is, has its own challenges, but fiction, it really has to have an emotional resonance at the end and it has to tie together. So write the full thing. And then you write a query letter, um, which is like a one-page pitch that explains, you know, like, what is this book about? What are your credentials? Like, why did you write it? And depending on, and then you, you got to research all the agents. And so the best ways to find agents, I, I think Publishers Marketplace, I usually recommend a two-month subscription. This is also on my website if people want to take a look. That'll kind of give you a sense of what's, what books are selling in the industry. And they also have rankings of like which agents are selling the most or which agents are selling for the large dollar amounts. Um, but you know, with a caveat that not all agents will post there, there's some fantastic agents that don't actually bother posting there. And the way to find agents, like you can see who's selling stuff that's similar to you. Um, you can read your favorite authors, like usually in the acknowledgements, they'll thank their agents. Um, and there's also things like Query Tracker um, or Agent Query, which are websites you could just go on there and see like people will actually track like so such and such agent is requesting and this is how long they take to read your novel and get back to you. And so sometimes that can give a little bit of measure of comfort when you're going through that process because it can be stressful to put your novel out there and then not hear anything for a long time. Once you have an agent, then the next step is you revise with the agent and the agent will pitch your book to the publishers. And so a good agent is going to know what editors like and what they're buying. 
um, a really good agent will know if an editor is a dog person or a cat person. <laughs> and if they've just bought, you know, a bunch of one type of book that they might actually be looking for something that's orthogonal to that. And so that's, you know, that's all an art form. And it's hard for, I think, us to, to know if we're not inside the industry. So for me, I had a number of agents offering. So what I did is I set up conversations with all of them. It was really important to me to find the right fit. So I flew to New York at the same time, actually, that, that I had flown out for that conference um, that the woman in my department had sent me to. So I had a chance to meet with them in person and really get a sense for like um, who resonated with the work the way that I resonated with it. And he, like Joe Volpe, who I went with, um, there was one thing she said about the gang of five in my novel. I told her like, they're my favorite side characters because they're just, they're not even that big to the plot, but they kind of randomly come out. They speak their pieces. They're so insecure about mm. their masculinity. And at the end, they, they, they kind of reclaim a lot of the stereotypes um, that they are, are angry about. And she said, they're like the Greek chorus. I was like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly mm. what they are. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but it was perfect. Um, so that, you know, plus like I went to her office and I just felt really, really comfortable there. I kind of knew that she was the one. So then the next step, so she sent it out to a bunch of publishing houses. There was a lot of interest. So I spoke with each of the editors um, and could get a sense of their vision for it. And then then they had, she held an auction mm. and they just, they kind of bid. And we ended up going with Harper Collins um, for a number of reasons. And for me, one of them was that they had the biggest vision for my career mm. and for the books. Wow. That was awesome. Thank you so much for pulling back the curtain and sharing with us and our listeners um, the whole entire process from the perspective of someone who is the writer. When you had coffee with uh, Mel and myself last time, you shared with us from a consumer's perspective, there are aspects of your participation in book buying that also is kind of industry specific and knowledge that people maybe don't know um, in terms of, I think, like what makes, what affects like rankings and ratings. Uh, can you share mm -hmm. with our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So um, one thing I came to appreciate more as I moved into the industry was how important independent bookstores are. And I've always loved my local independent bookstore, which is Kepler's. And I also, there's a couple others in, in, in town, um, Linden Tree Books and Books Inc. Most of my friends have always held their launch parties there. And so they really, they kind of get to know their communities. And they're the ones who are directly putting books in the hands of their readership. Like they know them personally. It's different than the, the, the algorithm on Amazon. And so they are actually... Um, I think the industry recognizes like that we need to preserve and protect independent bookstores. And so there is definitely, they're weighted more as a result because we, we do recognize like this is something that we value as a community and um, I want to, you know, maintain. That was something I, I think I wasn't as aware of, um, which was what I found was interesting about Love Boat Taipei is, you know, the Asian American community being relatively newer immigrants are not as plugged into independent mm -hmm. bookstores. So they tend to do all their purchases on Amazon. And so those are weighted less. Part of what's been fun about Lobo Taipei is just kind of um, helping to share some of that. Like, oh, this is why independent bookstores are important. And, you know, in Barnes & Noble as well, that's one of the last big bookstore mm -hmm. chains mm -hmm. left. Um, they were fantastic. They um, selected Lobo Taipei as their young adult book club pick for February. That was huge. And, like, the entire country was reading Lobo Taipei on February 7th and doing and having discussion around it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure that that's a big part of why it hit the New York Times list for that mm -hmm. week. Or in the weeks before, rather. Um, and then they also had me speak on their podcast. So like really these, these bookstores were incredible. And even now, like they, they they continue to hand sell Lobo Taipei. I'll get emails from people who are like, Hey, I just sold three books today. Right. And it's really a wonderful thing. The other, the other aspect that I am realizing too, is Asian Americans don't tend to rate mm -hmm. online. I would get so many direct messages like, love your book. Mm -hmm. like, and it's, it was fascinating. And I find that, you know, talking with other writer friends in the industry, it's like similar. Like, I think it's just maybe part of a little bit of the, the privacy and the modesty. And you don't want to write anything that's going to get you in trouble and you'll be there forever and on, on your record. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But um, 
the online ratings actually do really matter. So uh, for example, on Amazon, like we have, I think there's only 90 ratings, which yeah. is not very many. Um, like ideally we'd yeah. at least break a hundred. So, if, you know, be great if people go rate it. And then, you know, same with like Goodreads, like it's an important area to rate books, but um, if we don't rate and review, then our voices aren't reflected in, um, you know, the conglomerate. So things like that would come up. Um, and similarly, I think in the movie industry, there were there were boxes that people found they weren't falling into. So um, I did a talk at Google with the Farewell producer, and she said that because they were in, the Farewell was 80% in, in Mandarin, um, it was confusing whether they were a foreign language film or an American film. And so things like that, I think, have to get worked mm-hmm. out over time. No, I think after you shared that information with me and Janet, it really just like said, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I felt there's a lot of Asian Americans on Yelp leaving reviews, but why is anyone, you know, reviewing books and, you know, content as much? And um, I know we did a giveaway the past month for Asian American Heritage Month, and I I wanted to ask you, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I remember Abigail mentioning that we should buy your book, not from Amazon. So then you mentioned Barnes & Noble. So you bought the book off Barnes & Noble for one of our winners. So thanks for sharing that information. And oh, I'm, Thank I'm, you. Thanks for supporting yeah, the Yeah, no, of course. Um, and I, I love Amazon, like I have people, I have friends who work there, um, but yeah, the, the independent bookstores and, you know, the brick and mortar stores, they are, they have a special place. Amazon yeah. doesn't need any <laughs> they're, they're doing really well, yes. Yeah. 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 So thank you for sharing your, thank you for sharing that, you know, the insight. Um, I'm also curious, like, you know, what is your evaluation of like the publishing industry, you know, as an Asian American writer? It's really come such a long way. Um, I'm so encouraged. Like 15 years ago, there was a story mm-hmm. in the industry that I shared on tour. I, I probably shared with you guys last time I saw you um, about a girl who was asked to change her Chinese American boy character to a white character before they, they would publish it. And she talks about this and says it was like taking a spoon to her heart, but she did it because it's really hard to get a book contract. Yeah. And, you know, look where we are today. Like there's this whole We Need Diverse Books movement, um, which was started independently by um, some authors, including Ellen O. I feel like people have really embraced that and they really understand it. You know, working in Silicon Valley, like I kind of expect the Valley to be also forward thinking and they are. Like I definitely meet a lot of very forward thinking people, but I find that the book industry and the film industry, the people that I'm working with, um, are incredibly forward-thinking because that's what they do. That's mm-hmm. their job is to put out the latest ideas and, and to try to challenge like how people see the world. Yeah. So I've been really encouraged. Skillshare is a sponsor of today's episode of Asian Boss Girl. In this episode, we interview Abigail, who shares with us her journey to becoming an author. Have you ever thought about picking up an interest, like writing or even poetry? Skillshare offers tons of classes, content, and community workshops to develop those interests and turn them into real-life passions. They offer topics like creative writing boot camp, writing for expression, how to make your words more artful and lyrical, and for any of you having difficulty with those Instagram captions, even a class called Instagram Poetry. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. Skillshare is also incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ABG and get two free months of premium membership. That's right, Skillshare is offering Asian Boss Girl listeners two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes. Head to Skillshare.com slash A-B-G. ABGs and ABBs, we want to share with you one of my favorite food subscription services, Daily Harvest. I first tried their Harvest Bowls last year when I'd bring them to the office for lunch, and I loved the variety of flavors, from cauliflower rice and kimchi to Brussels sprouts and lime pad thai. 
The bowls are even better when you top them with your favorite protein and grains. Daily Harvest is helping me beat the heat with their refreshing smoothies and delicious scoops, their new plant-based ice cream. Scoops are free of additives, preservatives, and fillers because they're made with whole, nourishing, organic ingredients. And not only is their food nutritious, but it's beautiful too. I recently tried their kale and sweet potato flatbread, and oh my god, those shades of purple and green were almost too pretty to eat. They have harvest bowls, soups, smoothies, chia bowls, and dessert bites too. Keep it simple this summer with Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code ASIANBOSSGIRL to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code ASIANBOSSGIRL, one word, for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. dailyharvest.com. Now, we want to ask some questions about your book, Lepo Taipei, your first one. Um, Can you share with us what inspired you to write this book? So this one, I had gone on the book myself. Um, I was a presidential scholar in high school, and the Taiwanese government would go through the list of all the major high school awards, like Koch scholars, Prez scholars, and um, there were a couple like Westinghouse. Everyone with a Chinese last name would get this trip for free. So I showed up in the uh, summer after my freshman year of college, um, thinking I was going to learn language and culture, which is what this very nice letter mm-hmm. from you know, Chen Tan said. And then what I found was like, oh, there's this program nicknamed Love Boat, where the kids are just totally not supervised and everyone goes crazy they go clubbing drinking dancing (laughs) um taking glamour shots and it was like the party of your life and so I think this weird story has just always been in me like wow what a weird experience and you know you'd go to parties and you'd find out like oh you went on the boat and you'd have this like this moment where you could talk about all these crazy things that happened and it was kind of like the best kept secret in the community where a certain group of people knew about it and people had friends who went on it but like you know most people outside the community didn't really know about it um so I was at a friend's house and we were just talking about it. Someone's like, someone needs to write the story. <laughs> so I did. Um, it's dramatized. You know, it's all like, I think I, I kind of gathered like some of the quintessential stories, but like it's all dramatized. The characters are all fictional, but um, I had a good time. I think what was exciting for me too is to showcase like this side of Asian Americans, mm-hmm. this incredibly fun loving, like rule breaking, um, you know, side of people who fall in love and they make stupid mistakes and they recover and they become better people like all that I think is it's it's a real part of the community but we don't really see that as much in the media and you know so I think for me it was important to showcase that diversity within the community and the book itself ended up having 30 different characters and you know it was I wanted to kind of have that that array it's been exciting to see that um, and people responding to all those characters and finding finding themselves in different ones. Thanks so much for sharing your experience on Love Boat, Abigail. Um, we're curious to know, like, can you explain a little bit about maybe how long the program was and also maybe the different types of people that you met? Did they inspire the characters in the book? Are you still in contact with some of them today? Yes, a great question. The program has varied in length over the years. Uh, so there's a documentary out by Valerie So, and she kind of talks about some of this. My program was six weeks. I know that right now today it's a three-week program that's focused on the tour around the island. And then for the book itself, I ended up expanding it to eight weeks because I, I wanted the kids to really have time to develop these relationships. And as for like who these characters are, I think, you know, in some ways they're all me in different ways, but they're also just, there's not like one that's like, you know, a particular, like Rick is my, a little bit like my husband because he played football in high school and, and he played sprint football at Princeton. Um, I danced like ever, but Sophie, you know, like her drive just to get married, you know, Part of that is like other people, but part of that's me too, actually. You know, it's like funny how like for Sophie, her journey is recognizing like there's so much more to her than just getting married to a rich guy. Like she gets challenged. I'm spoiling this for some people, but average challenge is like, well, you're so smart. Why don't you go make your own money? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a part of me, 
even despite like people, I think they're surprised when they see that when they see my career, but there's still a part of me that's like a little bit like that. Not recognizing that you have these abilities and needing that extra outside push to, to even go further um, than you thought you could do, that you, than you kind of the, the goals that you set for yourself. Um, and then Xavier with his learning differences, um, that was actually really important to me because mm-hmm. um, you know we have them in our family and like that cognitive difference, like I think that's in some ways like a new frontier that we haven't fully explored. Like 20%, I think, of boys in high school have gotten an ADHD diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? And so like when that many people have that certain type of brain, like then is that really a, a learning difference anymore? Or is it just another mm-hmm. another kind of diversity? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I find like in Silicon Valley, especially a lot of entrepreneurs have some form of learning difference, like ADHD or dyslexia or autism. And, and it actually, that's part of like why they're so good at what they do. So I think for me, I, I like exploring, like, what does that mean? And my second book, I think, explores that a little bit more. I think as you're describing the characters, because um, I'm actually reading your book right now, and I'm and like, I think I'm a little bit halfway through, so I don't know the ending yet, but... Um, when I'm reading about Rick, I'm just like, oh, he's got a cute. Or like, it's funny because then the, the way you write about these characters are really descriptive. And I'm like, oh, as I was reading about Xavier, I was like, I think Janet would be into Xavier. I just like, you can picture these. Because the characters really do come to life with your writing. So I think it's really amazing. I feel like, you know, Love Boat is just such an interesting phenomenon too. Because um, I think I shared this and I shared with you, Abigail and Janet, during our coffee. But I mentioned this in like a long, one of our first seasons, but... As when I first moved to LA, I took a lot of side jobs to kind of like make ends meet. And one of my first jobs was I was working I was working as Valerie So's, the director of Love Boat. I was working as her researcher. So I would like research different people and articles about Love Boat. It's kind of cool how you guys both kind of came together. And then when I saw this book, I was like, oh, this is so fun and amazing. Because I actually wanted to attend Love Boat myself, you know, because I heard, you know, the potential to meet a, meet a mate and <laughs> make a bunch of friends in Taipei. Um, but yeah. I'm also curious because... You know, it's called Love Boat. Um, did you meet your husband on the trip or no? Yeah, so he actually went a couple summers before me. Oh. So, yeah. So we actually, you know, so we didn't meet there directly, but we met through, you know, friends of friends. And there's like kind of, I feel like the Love Boat community just, and just kind of the, the community in general, like mm-hmm. everybody kind of knows everyone. And I, I talk about this in the book with like two degrees of separation. I'm sure it's not the case, but it feels that way. Yeah. So Love Boat definitely is something that has connected us. Like we've talked about it a lot. It's shaped both of us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I talk about the two, the two main takeaways from Love Boat is one is you're healed in terms of your cultural understanding. If you needed to be healed, I did certainly. Um, and then two is that that rebellion, right? Like you're free to rebel in a relatively safe place all mm-hmm. summer and, and find out what are the consequences. And I think that helps to develop better leaders, um, especially in Silicon Valley, where we're looking for disruptors. And so I think my husband and I have some similarities in that sense. And, you know, definitely when I was writing this book, there's a lot of stories that I drew from his experience. Mm. Um, for example, the blue pipe that they sneak out over, mm. that was him. I did not sneak out over this blue pipe. I didn't even know it existed, actually, until yeah. we were talking about it. Um, my friends and I just ran out the front door. And, you know, so, and then he was into, like, the beer gardens and the snake blood sake. I did not touch any of that. But I did the glamour shots, which he didn't do. So, you know, we just – it was kind of fun to pull all those together. I love how the glamour shots yeah. are part of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever read a book with glamour shots in it before. Like we all we always have, like – well, one of my friends used to go back to Asia. Like, that's, like, the one thing we all have to do, right? Take those yeah. shots. Helen, I think you have some, right? I did. I do have some when I went back to uh, when oh, I went to China from high them. school. Share them along with the episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! Oh my gosh, Mel, the ones oh. in your room. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we we visited Mel's uh, home and we we saw some of her glamour shots. I mean, from when you were like I was 18. 18. I was 18. I was a late bloomer. 18. But, no, Abigail, actually, later on, oh, please send me your glamour shots. Like, send us your glamour shots. I want to see like. 
There is one on my Instagram. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure it's not uh, as risque as ever. No, no. Yeah. I don't have to reveal, but there's a part where Ever's taking her glamour shots, but she goes like, she's extremely like risky with it. (laughs) Well, Abigail, congrats on getting your book picked up by Ace. You know, how does it feel? And what are the next steps for the book and movie? And do you have people in mind for casting? So I love this question. Um, I'm not really allowed to answer the casting question because we are thinking about it. <laughs> but I am, it's been really exciting. I've really enjoyed working with Ace where we've, you know, the kind of the first steps was just getting on the same page. And like when I, I talked to a number of producers, like, and just getting different visions for it. Um, the hope is that it'll be slightly a musical, mm. a musical film. So that's super exciting. And so we've kind of gone back and forth on, I didn't, I didn't even know any of this until I started, but like there's different types of musicals, right? There's more, there's one where there's like a lot more randomly bursting into song and, you know, it's kind of driven by those songs. And then this one, we were thinking it'd be more leaning into the dance sequences. Mm. Um, but we keep going back and forth on it. Like, okay, maybe it could be even more musical than we're imagining. Is it more like Glee? Is it more like La La Land? You know, so that's been really fun to think about. You know, we wanted, we had, there was a big conversation about what part of the book stays in the movie, in the script, and what part's going to go because um, the novel's just too long to fit into a 90 minute to two hour film. Um, so, you know, that was, that was an interesting exercise. Um, the structure is pretty much, I think everyone felt like that was already working and so that would stay the same. So there is definitely a question around talent. Like, I have had so many actors and songwriters and other cast and crew reaching out which has been really exciting um, and I you know I'm hoping that we'll have a lot of undiscovered talent get discovered that's so exciting Here at Asian Boss Girl, we want to make sure we're constantly challenging ourselves creatively. A big part of our business requires a lot of design and presentation. Whether it's crafting aesthetically pleasing social posts or designing marketing decks for our partners, we're always on the lookout for ways to create eye-catching content. We recently discovered Issue, an all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital publications. It's designed for creators, marketers, or anyone who wants to take their content to the next level. As we plan our next line of merchandise, their lookbook templates are great in helping us visually plan our next photo shoot. Issue is also easy to use. You simply upload your PDFs and files, and Issue transforms them using your vision and customizable templates. Everything is optimized to post on your website and social platforms like Instagram and Facebook. Join the millions of Issue users and discover new content today. It's free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash abg to sign up for your free account. That's I-S-S-U-U dot info slash A-B-G to sign up and let them know you heard about it from our show. Remember, that's dot info, not dot com. Go to issue dot info slash A-B-G to set up your free account today. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. 
So in terms of next steps, you're transitioning in your job and sort of going into more of this like full-time writer and pursuing this passion of yours. You, you mentioned that you're going to have a second book that's coming out. Can you provide maybe some more details as to what that's going to look like for, for our yeah. listeners? Yeah, so um, I ha- the title hasn't been revealed yet, so I can't say it, but it is a sequel to book one. Book one is a standalone, but this one follows two of the characters, actually all the characters, but two of the characters in particular that people wanted to know what happened to after book one. Mm. So that's been fun. I just sent a draft to my editor and, um, you know, so we'll probably revise it. And it comes out currently slated for October 2021. Oh, wow. And what advice would you give to younger Asian American women who are trying to figure out how to balance pursuing a passion while maintaining a full-time corporate job? I think this is a question that we get a lot at at Asian Boss Girl. And I'd just like to hear that from from your side, too, because you wear so many different hats. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's going to be a different journey for everybody, for sure, Um, because I have friends who are execs and also writing. um, And they have said to me, like, they feel like the thumb is on the scale of exec. Like, that's what they love. That's who they are. Um, And they hope the writing will take off, but they cannot really devote as much, like, time and energy to it. Um, But it it fuels them, and it's, like, it's definitely their kind of, their outlet and their way of building community. I I mean, I think you have to kind of figure out, like, what what is it that you want and what your goals are uh, and recognize, like, sometimes they're going to be in conflict. And so, like, as I mentioned just in this talk, like I had moments when I had to make some hard decisions and I had to make some choices. So I think right now I'm heading into a season where my AI job will probably be smaller. What I'm hoping to do is start to integrate it more into the rest of my writing. So I have, my third novel is actually um, involves um, a girl in artificial intelligence. And actually the second book, the Love Boat sequel involves a little bit of artificial intelligence as well. I think, I think what I've come to realize in my whole exploration just the past two months about what to do with my careers is I have, I think the themes are the same. Like I care about the future of technology and this, this space that I think is going to be transformative mm-hmm. to the way we live and work. Um, and it's going to impact vulnerable populations differently than it will impact others. And so um, the ethics around artificial intelligence, the policies, um, and then issues around diversity and inclusion and bias and representation and cognitive differences, like all these things that I care about, I I can advance them in multiple ways. I can advance them through my job. I can advance them through thought leadership and creating like a a podcast talk series um, or in my nonfiction writing, or I can advance it through novel writing and maybe maybe potentially some films and women in tech and women leadership. That's another theme. So I think for me, like I, I understand now, like okay, these are the things I stand for. And so the choice for me is just about like, how is mm-hmm. it that I'm going to execute on them and with which partners at which time? And I think that is going to kind of constantly shift throughout my life. That was beautifully wrapped up, Abigail. Thank you so much for, um, you know, sharing that. I know we kind of introduced you as like, you do all these things and, you know, you wear all these hats. So it's, it's beautiful to, I think, a lot of our listeners can relate to the desire to want to accomplish a lot of different things. Uh, so I think that that mapping where you say, okay, I'm going to focus on what is what are the things that I care about? What are the missions? And then be open to that being able to be executed in a multitude of ways um, is an incredible message. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, and thank you for being here with us today. We really admire all mm-hmm. of your dedication and your persistence. Um, and we're so excited to see Love Boat Taipei become, um, you know, a movie and to, to check out your next book. Um, can you share with our listeners where they can find you, um, either online or elsewhere? Yeah, the best way is to sign up for my newsletter on my website. It's abigailhingwen.com. Um, and I will be sure to send out notes about casting and like any any information I have that's you know relevant to the community. And I also send out updates about the books and, and other things. 
Um, and then I'm on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And it's the same handle across all of them, Abigail Hingwen. Awesome. For our listeners, we also have some partnerships that we are happy to share with you all, like BetterHelp, Daily Harvest, and Ritual. Look for links and codes in our show notes. And for more partnership discounts, head to our website, asianbossgirl.com partners. Yes, you can also find us on all the podcasting platforms. We are Asian Boss Girl. So follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a rating and review. If you like to support us through monthly donations, you can do so at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support. We are also very active on social. Our handle is at asianbossgirl. If you resonated with today's guest and episode, screen cap the podcast, tag us, and we can reshare on our IG story. You can also find us on YouTube where we have started posting uh, a couple of different videos at asianbossgirl. And thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. Thank you again, Abigail, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Catch you all on the next episode. Bye. Bye.